Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who uh, haven't come to our church before, uh, welcome. Thank you for coming. I think there's probably nothing more exciting than seeing a person tell the story of how they were once lost, they were once without hope, and how Jesus Christ offered that hope to them, how they can know for sure that they'll spend eternity there. And uh, I'm just so encouraged just in, in general just to hear the story of Eliana. So uh, I'll just start with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin with our uh, study in Matthew this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you uh, just for your word. Just thank you for um, how you can change the soul, Lord, how you can take someone from a, um, really from the enemy and from a life of darkness and, Lord, transform them um, to be a child of God. Lord, we're just so thankful, Lord, for uh, your, your power and, and the changed the change, uh, effects that you have on a life, Lord. I'm just so thankful for Eliana boldly proclaiming her, uh, her identity in you. We just pray, Lord, that you bless her in the years to come, and just, Lord, I pray that uh, others may be encouraged by her, her story. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, we will be looking today at Matthew chapter 14. We've been going through the series in Matthew, and today we reach uh, chapter 14. We'll be looking at just 12 verses there. Um, but today's topic is a fairly serious topic, uh, a fairly heavy subject, actually. The discussion that we'll be having is a destructive one. It's a topic that is destructive personally, it's destructive emotionally, psychologically, and most importantly, it's spiritually destructive. The thing destroys relationships with others, it destroys marriages, it destroys families, it can lead to bitterness, it can lead to arguments, it can lead to hating others so much that you seek revenge, and some will even try to murder them for it. It can lead to unwanted pregnancies, it can lead to STDs such as HIV, which leads to AIDS. This thing destroys a person's life and ultimately can lead to death. The topic is sexual immorality. And I believe that sexual immorality is a thing that not a lot of people like to think about or really pay too much attention to because this topic is usually uncomfortable to talk about. It's something that not a lot of people want to even stray towards. It's not pleasant. And yet, statistically, this is something that is running rampant in our society. And it continues to exponentially become more and more acceptable as the years go on. If you look at movies today, or even music, sexual innuendos, nudity, and outright explicit lyrics and sexual acts are discussed regularly. Uh, to prove this, I looked at some research online and found that uh, based on a Kaiser Family Foundation, as much as 80% of movies and network television contain some form of sexual content. 60% of all music videos either contain mild or explicit sexual content. I, yeah, I found it even just when you watch in between shows, even for a five minute clip of commercials, there is not even five minutes where sex is not used to sell a product or to entice you to buy a car or a website or some form of product they're selling. And it's not just the media or television that floods us with this. People are actively seeking out immoral content. Uh, this, these next statistics kind of blew my mind. It says that the porn industry generates $90 billion annually. Uh, just to give you an idea of how much that is worldwide, uh, the Hollywood movies combined, all of Hollywood combined, makes $10 billion general in an annual year, which means that porn generates nine times more than all of Hollywood's combined in an annual year. Thus, porn generates nine times more. It's, it's estimated that 
pornography accounts for 35% of all the content found on the internet. 35%, which means that porn attracts more visitors each year than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. In America, there are 40 million regular users of pornographic websites. And it's not just men. In fact, one-third of all viewers are women. But the virtual world is never enough for people. It's estimated that by the age of 20 years old, 75% of Americans admit to having sex outside of the context of marriage. And when you reach the age 44, it's 95%. Even within a marriage, it's not safe from sexual immorality. A recent study by the University of Utah shows that roughly 20% of married people will be unfaithful to their partner at least once during their marriage. Infidelity on a low year accounts for 20% of all divorces, and on a higher year, up to 40% of all divorces in the US. I could go on, but the point I'm trying to make is that sexual immorality is out of control in this world today. From the content on TV to the internet, to sex being done outside of marriage, and even the marriage bed itself is not safe from this issue. And so how did we get on this topic, you might ask? Well, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, we reached chapter 14. Two weeks ago, we looked at the utter rejection of Jesus by the Jews. They chose to be offended at him rather than believe the proof and the signs that he offered to show that he indeed is the Messiah. And as Jesus goes about performing his miracles and displaying his power, someone takes notice that someone is Herod. And really the focus of today is gonna to be a character study on the life of Herod. Herod Antipas was a wicked man uh, for a variety of reasons, but the sin that most defined his life and will be most remembered is his problem with sexual immorality. And as we study his life, we'll see at least three things about him. The first being the ugliness of his sin. The second being the decision that he makes when he's confronted with his sin. And lastly, the ultimate downfall and his death. His life was told to us in the, storm, in the form of a flashback of events that took place in his life surrounding the death of John the Baptist. This story is found in two accounts in the gospel, both Matthew and Mark. Matthew, the one that we'll be reading through, it gives us a brief description, but I also felt it appropriate to read through Mark as well because it gives a more full picture of all that took place. And so we'll read in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll read also in Mark 6. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work within him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a plate. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Mark 6 uh, also gives this encounter. I'll just read through it as well. Mark 6, 16 through 26 reads, But when Herod heard, he said, This is John whom I have beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. 
For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, his high officers, and chief men of Galilee. And when Herod's daughter herself came and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said to him, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste and the king asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. So this story is on the life of Herod Antipas. Who is Herod Antipas? He is the son of Herod the Great. This is the same Herod who is described earlier in this book that commanded that all children two years of age and under should be slaughtered in Bethlehem, which was his attempt, and really a failed attempt, to kill Jesus in order to protect his throne. And I could go on about the Herod family, but it should suffice to say that the wicked acts of the Herod family are well documented in history. And so this is the son of Herod the Great we're talking about today. He was a tetrarch, meaning that he was in control or ruled over a fourth of the land of Israel. And as we also know, he was married at the time that this was written. Now this flashback into the life of Herod is triggered by guilt that Herod had. Herod had been hearing the things that Jesus had been doing and that his disciples were doing, and he thinks to himself, can it be that John the Baptist has come back from the dead to condemn me? And you might think, well, why would he be afraid of John the Baptist? Well, as we learn, he beheaded John. Why did he do that? It's because it all started on a day when he met Herodias. And believe me when I say this story only gets uglier and uglier as we go, because it exposes just how grotesque and how sick and vile sin really is. I don't have every detail or the time to do it either, but it should suffice to say that it was a bad day on the day that Herod met Herodias. And if you're single, or even if you're married for that matter, and you want to know the kind of a woman to avoid and stay away from, look no farther than Herodias. Who is Herodias? Well, we're told that Herodias is the wife of Herod Antipas' brother, Philip. And while every detail is not included, we can safely say that there was lust in the heart of Herod and Herodias towards one another. They were sexually attracted to one another. They lusted after one another, and it's unclear who initiated what, but ultimately the lust they had in their hearts was not enough for them. Because Herod Antipas decides that he is going to divorce his current wife and pursue marriage with Herodias. And so Herodias ends up getting a divorce from Philip, and now there's two divorces that have occurred. There are two families that have been split up in order that Herod and Herodias can selfishly pursue their sexual desires for one another. And ultimately, Herod and his Herodias get married to one another. And in the eyes of the court, they are now married. But now here, John the Baptist comes in. Because in the eyes of God, these two were unlawfully married. In the eyes of God, Herodias was still Philip's wife, and Herod had taken her away from him. And what Herod was doing in pursuing his sexual immorality was leading him, and will lead him as we go on, more and more into sin. And so God placed John in Herod's life to take a bold stand against him, and saying that what he is doing is sinful in the eyes of God. I mean, I, 
when I read this, I just thought to myself, think about John. He is speaking these things with authority to a man who has both the ability and power to imprison him and even kill him for speaking up, both of which he ultimately does. But nevertheless, John did not back down from speaking the truth. He did not say, you know what, I'm not going to say these things because he has a lot of power over me. No, John was fearless, despite the consequences that would come from him speaking up to a ruler like Herod. I remember recently a, a patient was speaking to me and I told him that I was a Christian and he was involved actively in a homosexual lifestyle. And when I told him that he was a Christian, uh, he said to me, oh, so you think that how I'm living my life is wrong then, don't you? And I was very timid and I was very sheepish to answer his question, but I, I ultimately uh, slowly answered that, you know, well, God does say that sexual immorality is wrong and that you know, homosexuality is a sin that he doesn't, you know, agree with. And I mentioned the gospel in there a little bit, but I was so fearful to tell him the truth of how God really viewed his sin. And yet, if I think back on it, I don't know why I was, because that man had no power over me. He didn't have really anything that he could do to me. He couldn't kill me. He couldn't put me in jail. He couldn't make me uh, lose my friends or family. He could do nothing to take away my freedoms. And yet I was a little bit sheepish to tell him the truth of his sin. And yet here, John, who has everything to lose in a worldly perspective, he could lose his friends, his family, his life, he could lose all his freedoms, he boldly stood up for the truth of the Word of God. It's amazing to me to read those things that he did. And um, he, was, uh, he was adamant that he was going to continue telling Herod these things whether he wanted to hear it or not. And depending on the translation you use, some of the versions seem to indicate that John had not just made this statement once, but some versions seem to say that it says that John had been saying, which means that it's been a constant thing that he's been repeating, that it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And likely, um, this is something that John had repeated, uh, that he was, you know, ultimately he's involved in this destructive behavior. It's going to lead him to uh, really his demise. And more than that, I also believe John would have told him that if he repented and turned from his sin, he would have you know, a life that's a few, you know, fruitful, a life that's away from the sin, he would avoid the eternal consequences that he would face for his sin. And so with this information that John would have given him, what does Herodias make of all of it? Well, she was adamant that she wanted John dead. We learn this from Matthew, that Herod had put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. She must have been constantly complaining and telling him, I don't want John around. And so John was punished for boldly speaking about their sins with each other. But Mark tells us in uh, Mark 6, 19, that Herodias held it against him and wanted him killed, but she could not. And she couldn't because Herod feared John. Herod had conflict in his mind about what to do. And so in an attempt to appease Herodias, he just sentenced John to jail and thinks that Herodias should be fine. That should be enough to appease her. But he never really intended to kill John intentionally. He just wanted to shut him up from exposing their sin. But Herodias was not done with John. She wanted revenge. She held a grudge against John, and she wanted his head off. And she waited for just the right moment to accomplish this very thing. And knowing what she knew about Herod and how she could use that very sin that he was actively involved with, with her, she could use that against him. She could use it for her own advantage. And so she begins planning in her mind what she will do to get Herod to finally put an end to this fearless prophet. We read about this in uh, Mark 6, that then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles and the high officers 
and the chief men of Galilee. Then Herodias' daughter herself came and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Now the day that Herodias had been planning for so long finally comes to fruition. She has the opportunity now at a birthday celebration to take advantage of Herod. And it would likely have been in an all-male event. This is something that he had high officials at, uh, chief officers. Uh, these are men of high power, all brought in a party which would not be fit for any women or children, or really anyone for that matter. Uh, would likely have been a party full of foul language, uh, coarse jesting. Uh, likely it would have been endless food and alcohol there. And when they finally reach the right level of drink and the right fill of food, then Herodias' plan begins. And you see, Herodias had a daughter with Philip, the man that she just left for Herod. Herodias' daughter, it's estimated, would have been a teenager and could be anywhere from 14 to 16 years old. And this would have been Herod's niece, or I guess now, if you count their new marriage, this would have been now his stepdaughter. And um, Herodias then sends her daughter into, the da into dance for Herod and all the men there with him. And let's just be clear, Herodias sends her daughter there, and this dance that she does for them, it is a sexual dance. It is an erotic dance that was meant to arouse Herod and the guests there and fill them with lust, and it says that they were pleased by it. Herod watched his own niece dance for him, and he found sexual gratification by it. He was watching a minor who is related to him by blood. Just think of how low his immorality has taken him, that this is now bringing him pleasure. Herod has fallen victim to Herodias' plan. He was aroused, he was pleased by all that she did. And therefore, in Matthew 14, it tells us, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And in Mark 6, Herod offers to give her up to half his kingdom. I just want you to look at this for a second to get a good picture of who Herodias is, the character of this woman, and really this whole situation. It is disgraceful what Herodias' daughter did. It would be shameful for any woman to dance in the way that she danced. But it's even worse that a princess now is dancing this way. And it's exponentially more disgraceful because of the fact that Herodias raised her daughter in a way where she could use her in this way. And in fact, even encouraged her to perform this dance and now in front of her unlawful husband, Herod. What kind of mother is that? What does it say about the character of Herodias? I believe this is how Proverbs 5 would describe Herodias. Pay attention, my son. Pay attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips may comply with knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Though Herodias may have been appealing to Herod initially, though... He may have been uh, amused by, you know, seeing her, the idea of being with her. He doesn't realize that his life is about to begin on a downward trajectory from here on out. Though she seems sweet and pleasant, his involvement with her will be bitter in the end. Proverbs 6 goes on to say, For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. An adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Herod still doesn't realize it, but sexual immorality has lifelong consequences. You can't play with fire or walk on coals and not expect there to be repercussions for it. 
You can't indulge in sexual immorality and not expect lifelong consequences. The Lord tells us that even an immoral lifestyle choices reduces even the wealthiest people down to nothing, even down to a loaf of bread. An adulterous woman or an immoral woman like Herodias seeks for the life of her victims. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't even know it. She doesn't fear God. Her, leads, her path will only lead you to destruction. And so to anyone listening, avoid a woman like this. Avoid a woman that will pull you farther and farther away from the path of righteousness. And so what a tangled web of sin we're in now. You have, you know, really, all these things happening, all because of that initial sin that he got involved with. And that's the way sin is. It begins with a small area of your life, and then it compounds itself into a lifestyle of this behavior. Herod, I'm sure, had no idea how far down on this path of sin would take him when he took an interest in Herodias. But here he is now. But you know, Herodias is not the only one who has a problem with this, and not the only one in history who has had problems with this. If you look back, even King David, the writer of many psalms that we love and cherish, the man who's said to be a man after God's own heart, is probably most notably remembered for his struggles in this area. I know his story is well known to many of you, but to recap, or if you're not familiar with his story, there was a time where he should have been out at war. He should have been with his men, but he chose to stay behind where he shouldn't be. He was there, he saw another man's wife, Bathsheba. He saw her bathing on the roof. He desired her. He lusted after her. He asked to have her be brought to him. He slept with her. She conceived a child. Now he's not sure what to do. He doesn't want to make it seem like it was his child, so he asked to bring her husband back from war in the attempts to make it seem like it was his child all along. But Uriah, her husband, decides, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't sleep with my wife knowing that my men are still fighting at battle. So David, with a failed attempt of not being able to pass on to make it seem like it was his child, he decides, well, then I'm going to have it sent that when he goes out to war, I'll have all the men retract as he's in the heat of the battle, and he'll be killed ultimately because of my orders, and that way I can get rid of Uriah. David wanted his sin to be covered up. He wanted to indulge in his sin without having the consequences of it. He didn't want anyone finding out. It would all be hidden. But that's never the way sin is. The Bible tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. His sexual immorality led to lies. It led to the murder of the very husband that, of the woman he just slept with. Uh, it led to the death of that child, ultimately, that he conceived, or that she conceived. Years down the road, uh, he suffered the consequences of endless battles. You see that there was bloodshed among his family. And David would have trouble come upon his house, specifically through Absalom, his son, who would ultimately uh, publicly have sex with David's concubine on a rooftop. In the very same way that David violated another man's wife privately, now Absalom would do publicly in front of David and all the people in the town to see. And if we look back on what caused all this turmoil in David's life, what caused all this hardship that he experienced, we can all go back and see that it resulted from his lust towards Bathsheba. That's the reason I bring these things up, is because had David not indulged in his lustful desires, life for him would have looked significantly different. Sexual immorality has lifelong consequences. We know this to be true in the life of David, and we will see this to be true in the life of Herod as well. So going back to the passage, Herod's uh, now seeing the daughter of Herodias dance for her. He's pleased with it. He gives an oath that he'll give her whatever she'd ask for. And so in verse 8, so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. 
And now the spotlight's on Herod. Clearly an oath is an oath, but he never promised to do harm to someone, and clearly God doesn't condone taking another person's life, especially a prophet of his. Herod, though, has a lot of fears in this moment, you know? Herod is a man plagued by fear. He feared worldly reputation. What would the friends and the dinner guests think of him? He must have thought, I just told these people I was going to give her whatever she asked. I can't let them down. I can't, I can't let her down for that matter. What are they going to think about me if I retract and say, well, you know, I, I didn't mean that. Uh, you know, I'll look weak. I'll look like I'm not in control. I'll lose their respect. But then on the other hand, Herod also feared the repercussions that would happen from the crowd that followed John. What would they say? Would they rebel against me? Would they overthrow me? Would I lose my power because they're so frustrated at what I just did? And also, Herod at some point must have also feared John and God because he knew that John was a righteous man. He knew that this man spoke of repentance. He knew that, you know, that one day likely he would have to stand before God for saying these things or, or for killing this man if he did that. And you know, when I, when I read about the life of Herod, I, just, I see a man who's on the fence about what to do. A man who wouldn't commit to one crowd or the other. He lived his life never committing fully. He wouldn't commit to turning away from his sin, and yet he liked the idea of listening to John and hearing about what God had to say. He liked the words of John, but never enough to do anything about it. And here uh, in Mark 6, it tells us that Herod feared John and protected him, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked listening to him. And so for whatever reason, Herod was intrigued by what John had to say even though the very things that John had to say were condemning him, even though the very things he had to say was showing him and exposing his sin before God. John must have spoke to Herod constantly about his sin and need for repentance. And as difficult and as unpleasant as that would have been for him to hear, something about John captivated Herod. And it turned Herod's hatred towards him into respect and admiration for him. And yet, even with that respect and admiration with him, he never moved past just simply enjoying hearing him. Herod never did anything, even though his sin was well aware to him, even though the fact of repentance was made known, even though he probably was told that he should commit his life to Christ, yet Herod chose to live a life of sin instead. He wanted the influence of a righteous man like John around him, but didn't want to heed his words or to act upon them. And that, would, that for Herod was just too much. He couldn't he couldn't bear the sight of what his friends or family would think. What would the higher officials think if I gave my life to Christ? What if I gave my sin up? How would that look? And you know, many people today are in that same position. People are in the same position that Herod was in. They go to church. They like listening to messages. They like hearing Christian songs. They surround themselves with Christian influence. They read the Bible. like They like what they see. But there's a conflict because the very thing they enjoy condemns them for their lifestyle. They read through the Bible and they are exposed that they are sinners. They are sinners in need of a savior. And the Bible tells us clearly that the wages of sin is death. And if you were honest with yourself and you really examine your life, it wouldn't take you more than maybe 10 minutes to realize that you are indeed a sinner in need of a savior. You are a sinner deserving of hell. But Thankfully, it doesn't end on a sour note. That's not the end. There's hope. There's good news. And the good news is that you don't have to spend an eternity in hell. Christ has died on your behalf on the cross where he took your punishment, your penalty for your sin, 
that you rightfully deserve, he bore it all there on the cross for you. And the only thing you must do is repent and turn away and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that's where a lot of people stop listening. They sadly think, you know, I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I want to walk away from my sin. I don't know if I want Jesus to be Lord over me. I kind of like being in control. I kind of like doing what I'm doing. I kind of like my sin. I don't want my life to be turned around. I don't know if I want my friends and family to know that I'm a Christian. I don't know what that would mean for me. How would people at work think? What would they say to me? And Herod, in the same way, was fearful of both God and man. But the thing is that everyone in life has to make this choice to either accept Christ and his offer or to reject it. And whether that's decided based upon fear of others or fear of the unknown or fear that life wouldn't be as good as it is in my sin, either way, you have to make that choice. Decision is yours to make, but I can just tell you from personal experience that a life lived for Christ is much more satisfying and fulfilling than any sin that you're holding on to right now. So when you think about life, though, from an eternal perspective, what are you going to do? Will you die and spend an eternity in hell clinging to so tightly the sin that you love? Or will you walk away from your sinful lifestyle that doesn't satisfy and cling to Christ as your Savior for eternity? There are only two options. And sadly, as we go on, we find out what Herod chose. Because with fear and with not wanting to disappoint his dinner guests and to say a face before them, Herod proceeds with beheading uh, John the Baptist, as requested by Herodias, who was then prompted by her mother. It reads in verse 9 through 12, And the king was very sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Herod, he felt sorry. He felt remorse. But there's never a clear indication that Herod ever repented and turned his life to Christ. Herodias, on the other hand, got revenge for the man she hated so much. And in turn, Herod was left with all the pieces of perpetual guilt over what he had done. Which is how this flashback in the first place even begins and is told to us. Herod had heard Jesus and he heard the miracles that were being done by him and his disciples. And upon hearing this, the constant guilt has been plaguing him in his mind has the very man I just beheaded actually come back from the dead to condemn me against my sin? Which, by the way, really speaks volumes about the life of John. John's life mirrored Christ so much so that in his actions and his behavior, so much so that Herod actually thought that he came back from the dead. That that was a more plausible solution or conclusion than the fact that it's Jesus. Just think about, though, the stark contrast between these two men. Herod and John the Baptist. Herod could not say no to self, could not say to the pleasures of his flesh. He indulged in it constantly, and in the end, it ruined him. But on the complete opposite spectrum, John denied his flesh. He refused even some of the most basic worldly pleasures. He devoted his life to being the forerunner of Jesus, telling others to repent and baptizing them in preparation for his arrival. He not only did that, but he stood up against Herod for his wickedness, even when it cost him his freedoms and his life. John is truly a man who sacrificed everything 
for the joy of serving Jesus faithfully. Herod, on the other hand, would not let any part of this world go. He couldn't see his need for repentance even when a righteous man pointed it out so plainly to him. The two men could not be any more different. Well, Herod's conscience now is still eating him up for the senseless murder of one of the greatest prophets that had ever been sent to this earth. And in Matthew 23, 37, you can just hear the groaning in the voice of Jesus as he reflects back on the track record of Israel. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And Herod was just one of the many uh, that murdered God's messengers and prophets. Herod was a leader, though, that represented Israel. He acted on behalf of the nation. And as their leader, his actions really though did reflect the vast majority on their view of God's messengers and prophets. By and large, most of Israel rejected John's message. Most did not repent. Most refused to believe. And God's messengers, and if you just look at the life of any prophet, have time and time been not only just rejected, but abused, harassed, mistreated, killed for their bold stand in the truth of God. Oh, how God longed to have a relationship with this nation, and yet they would not allow him access into their lives. Imagine that. The creation refusing their creator access into their lives, which, by the way, he gave them in the very first place. Well, the Bible itself doesn't touch too much more on the life of Herod Antipas, but the history books do. And so I thought I would tell you what happens next in the life of Herod, because I found it to be incredibly interesting. But I also found it to be a stern warning for the consequences of a life that is sexually perverted in its lifestyle. History tells us that Herod, while he had moved on from his first wife, the father of his first wife had not. Because the father-in-law of his first wife was so furious with Herod from divorcing her that he actually ended up sending an army and declared war on Herod. Herod then was scrambling to find the right uh, army and troops to, to come back and combat that, but ultimately he was defeated by his father-in-law. Shortly after that, his relative, uh, Herod Agrippa, then accused him of treason against Rome, and Herod Antipas ultimately, long story short, was banished into exile with just himself and Herodias. He then dies in exile, and his death in exile is unclear as to how it happened, but some do believe that he ultimately committed suicide there in exile. What a sad end to a life. And yet, in his life, you see the whole life cycle, the whole life cycle of sin here on display. The life cycle of sin I'm talking about is found in, in James 1, 14 and 15, where it says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when, it, when, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It all started when Her Herod lusted after Herodias, which gave birth to his sin. And through his choices, it led to two divorces, hurt and anger from those involved with it, which led to military battles where he was defeated. It led to Herod having such a deprived mind that he would find pleasure viewing his niece in a sexual manner, which led to ultimately him being uh, taken advantage of, where he ultimately um, was used to cut off the head of John the Baptist. And then he's brought forth with guilt for the rest of his life, likely until he was placed in exile. And ultimately, it brought forth his own death, where he killed himself. 
And you see, sin ultimately leads to death. Though Herod never knew what would come from his immoral lifestyle choices when he chose it, it ultimately reduced him to nothing, being alone with nothing more than the woman he should have never lusted after in the first place. His life had been brought to ruins, and it goes to show that this all stems back from his initial choices. His immoral behavior is what led to his ultimate downfall. It cost him everything, from political power to financial well-being, and most importantly, it pulled his heart away from repenting and accepting the gift of salvation. If only Herod had heeded John's rebuke and, rep and repented, how differently his life would have turned out. Do you ever wonder, though, like why God includes these stories like Herod's in the Bible? Why, what reason would God include a story of a wicked man like this? Why did God spend two places in his gospel to put a story like this here? Why would he even decide to include this? And I believe that it's placed here to give wisdom to those who are also on the same path that Herod was on. It's a warning to those that are struggling with sexual temptations and sexual immorality that this is the end result of a man who has gone down that path. It resulted in the loss of everything, even his own life. Herod can be likened to the fool described in Proverbs 5 through 7. He is the man that was lacking sense. He was enticed by his sin, not realizing where it was going to take him. This is the shocking and stern warning that Proverbs 7 gives about a man who pursues an adulterous and immoral woman. It says, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one walks in the ankle bracelets of the, to the discipline of a fool, until, until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hurries to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me and pay attention to my words and to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her past, for many are the victims she has brought to ruin, and numerous are all those slaughtered by her. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. And so it is with the life of Herod. He did not know that sexual immorality the pursuit of his sexual desires would cost him everything. He didn't know that even some of the strongest, bravest, most valiant men had also fallen victim to this very type of woman. And in the end, it ruined them. And so, if you're struggling with this sin, or really any sin for that matter, what is the application? How can you learn to avoid the same mistakes that Herod did? And there are just three things that I believe are essential to do. And these things are not just helpful for sexual sins, but any sin that you struggle with. The first thing is to study God's word. Read it, memorize it, meditate on it. Allow it to be so ingrained in your mind that when a temptation to sin arises, it will become something that comes back to your mind. David says in the Psalm 119, how can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you think about it this way, you cannot take in ungodly, worldly things constantly and expect to live righteously. You can't be, you know, living for this world and expect a different outcome. You must be taking in God's word daily, reminding yourselves of the truth to protect you from the pitfalls of sin that comes with it. 
Proverbs 7 is the plea that a father would give to his son, but it's also included for us and for our benefit. It says, my son, keep my words, treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live in my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your finger, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend so that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with your words. So be wise, gain understanding by listening to the warnings and the commandments that the Lord has given us in his word. You will avoid the detrimental effects of this lifestyle that you saw with Herod. And the Lord, really, he, he's made you and he knows what's best for you. He knows what things are harmful to you. That's why he included these things, because he knows that these things will bring you harm. And so he doesn't want you to go down a path that's, he's not trying to take away your sin. He, he wants you to, to live a life that's righteous because there are effects that will destroy you. And that his word and the way he has prescribed for us is beneficial to us. And sin of any kind is only going to pull your heart farther and farther away from him. So heed his word. Listen to him when he tells you of the pitfalls associated with a specific sin. In a world full of lies and deception about sin, bring yourself back to the truth of the word of God and obey it. The second thing to do is that when you're tempted and you encounter a situation where sin is knocking at your door, you must flee from it. Do everything in your power to run from it. 1 Corinthians 6.11 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. If you think back in the Old Testament to Joseph, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife and she tried to seduce him, he fled that place. He didn't even to go back to take his jacket that she held onto. He was determined, I'm going to run away from this no matter what. I don't want any part of this. It's that dramatic or that drastic measures he took that saved him from ultimately the, the pitfalls of that sin. Uh, Matthew 8, 9 gives us another drastic measure that we should take. It says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. It's not necessarily the idea he's trying to get across that you have to pluck out your eye, but more so the idea is taking drastic measures to eliminate the temptations around you. If you know there's triggers in your life or there are certain things that are more susceptible or more likely to cause you to stumble, get rid of it. If internet's a problem for you, cut it off. Put filters on it. If you know that movies are a trigger to you, stop watching those movies. Cancel your streaming services. If being alone triggers you, find someone else, call them up. Go for a run, do something, whatever it takes to flee that sexual desire or that sin of any sort. Find someone you can be accountable to. Do whatever it takes to avoid and flee from your sin. And the third and final thing is to pray. I think this one gets overlooked so much because most people don't spend the time to pray, but God is more than capable of giving you the victory over any sin area in your life. Any sin area. Pray that he would give you the strength to say no to the sin that you struggle with. A verse that I've come back to so many times in my life, and I know many others have, is 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's a helpful reminder that no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will not give you a temptation that is too much for you. There is always a way out. So pray to God. Pray that you would find that way of escape each time you're tempted to sin. 
And finally, if you do sin, if you do fall back into that sin, remember to not give up. We have a God who is patient and forgiving towards us that we can come back to each time and seek forgiveness. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a gracious, kind, and merciful God who is willing to forgive us our sin every single time, whether it's the first time we've sinned or the hundredth time. So confess your sins, get back to the basics of taking in his word, fleeing and cutting off all ties with sin, and praying for help in times of uh, temptation. These are the essentials of living a life free of sexual sin. <clears throat> These are the essentials to do to avoid the pitfalls of the immoral life. And so as we look back on the life of Herod, learn from his mistake. The life of the sexually immoral leads to all kinds of heartache, pain, suffering, troubles, and even death. God has designed you to be set apart from those things and to instead honor him, to bring him glory. And so let our lives not be for ourselves or for our own pleasures as Herod lived for, but rather be fully devoted to the service of Christ as John did. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we just, we look at this topic and Lord, there's so many truths in your word and Lord, we, we look at the pitfall of Herod's life and how he was a man that just pursued his, his flesh. And Lord, we're just, we're warned today by it and we're warned uh, of the, the reality of that sin. And Lord, we want victory over any sin in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would provide for us victory in every area of sin in our life, that we would turn to you, Lord, that we would pray and take in your word daily and that we would flee from any type of sin in our lives. Lord, I pray that you give us the victory this week, this month, this year over sin. I pray that, Lord, if there's anyone who is struggling with this sin, Lord, that you would release them from the bondage that they have in this and that, Lord, they would find victory in you. I just pray all these things in your name. Amen.